Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by Callie Kaplan. Hello, Callie. Hello, Kevin. It's wonderful to see you. It's great to see you. Great to be back with you again. Uh, also, Evan Grant, who's in Lubbock. I am. I'm here. Are you vacationing there? I drove across the state to join you guys. Oh, my God. If you just keep on driving, that'd be great. Just keep going west. What do you say? Okay. You got it. Okay. Good. Hobbs, That's New great. Mexico next week. <laughs> and also, David Moore, straight from the autopsy uh, of the Cowboys, who were, were dead on arrival, basically, Sunday at Jerry World. Uh, that one was over pretty much after the first drive uh, by the 49ers, and it was, it was all downhill from there. Well, one, let me clarify you. I believe the autopsy will go on for weeks more based on uh, <laughs> yeah, what, right. what our meeting today showed. And, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but yeah, I, you know, it's not just the fact that Dallas lost to San Francisco. It is the fact that Dallas was the only home team to lose in the first round of the NFL playoffs. And not only did they lose... They never led in the game, never. And look, I, I think this, um, I'm sure we'll look at the season overall in s- a little bit. I mean, you know, they, they made some improvement and there, there were some things to point to. I mean, they, they won the division and they went 12 and five. But to me, going forward, what is more troublesome, I would say, for the Cowboys front office is that in the final two weeks of the season, with a home game against Arizona, which all of the players said was a measuring stick and was going to announce to the rest of the NFC field that they were a team to be feared going into the postseason. They trailed 22-7 to going into the fourth quarter of that game at home against Arizona before losing. And then this past Sunday, two weeks later, they were down 23-7 to going into the fourth quarter against the 49ers, a team that finished third in their division. So that is more instructive, I think, on where this Cowboys team and how it stacks up with the, uh, the, the best teams in the NFC, more so than their 12-5 and record, built on the bones of a horrible NFC East division. Yeah, I think you could easily say that they, uh, they topped out after the first two games of the season. You know, the, the, yeah. that 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 uh, the two point loss to Tampa Bay on the road, a shocking uh, turn uh, development. I thought they would get beat by 10 points out there. They were about to win that game. And of course, Tom Brady pulled it out, as he always does at the very end. But that was they played remarkably well for the first game of the season for Dak's first game back. Uh, and then the, the next week they, they go out to L.A. and they. And, they, and the Chargers were kind of up and down all year long, but Justin Herbert is a tremendous quarterback and uh, and a tremendous talent, and they and they pulled that game out of the fire. So that was two pretty good performances right out of the, the, the boat. And if if you look at you go back and look at the schedule now, how everything turned out, we we thought, as you and I discussed the other day at, at, at Sunday at the at the Cowboys playoff loss, that the Patriots game was probably their best win of the year. And now, how good does that win look? when you look at the fact that the Bills just blew them out of the water in the first round of the playoffs. Yeah. Um, this was this. Yeah. We pull out the, the trite. You can only play who they, you know, who you have on the schedule. And I get that, but um, you know, this team 
scored more than 50 points twice in the final three weeks of the regular season. And that did nothing to prepare them for what it was they faced uh, against the San Francisco team. Um, Like I said, and to me, I think what's really troublesome for the organization and certainly is for Cowboys fans is that I believe they, everyone allowed themselves to believe this team was different than past versions, that this group was more complete than any Cowboys team in quite a while and was capable of winning games in different ways in the postseason and maybe a little bit more insulated from the fall flat on your face moments uh, that we saw. And and they were not. And, and I tell you, what, I think this is um, – there had already been, I think, among Cowboys fans, uh, a sense of, well, you know, wake me up when the regular season is done. I, I really don't care what this team does during the regular season. You know, let's see what happens here in the postseason. Um, but I think they allowed themselves to kind of get sucked in on the on this team late in the season. You know, I think it's a little bit about the, um, you know, the sirens leading the the ships to crash on the rocks where you wake up and you realize you're not who you thought you were, where you thought you are. And uh, that's what happened to this team again. And, and I think there's even going to be more skepticism in the fan base going into next season about, well, why should we believe anything we see from you guys until you get past the divisional round of the playoffs, which will now be uh, 26 years and counting. Well, I don't think there's any question that it should be skepticism. Let me ask both of you guys a question. Go ahead, Evan. This is – in watching the game on TV, you know, I thought one thing that Tony Romo said in the fourth quarter that was, was really prescient was this is a Cowboys team that's built for the now. Okay, so it's built for the now. What do you fix? What's, what is there for the Cowboys to fix? I mean, we, we spent all year talking about what a good defense this was and how good it was at, at takeaways, and it, it was better at rushing the passer. We talked about all the weapons Dak Prescott had. What do you fix? What's to fix to make this team better? I, this team well, shot I, I wanna, in the foot. That's what the problem before is. David, before David talks, I want to – because this is something he brought up, and it's an excellent point uh, in his story today, was that – the Cowboys need to fix their offensive line because the larger point about that is that to me, Dak Prescott is clearly incapable of shouldering the burden of carrying this team. He has demonstrated that now, I believe uh, irrevocably. Uh, so, so you have to make this team as Dak friendly as possible because he is going to remain as your quarterback and without an offensive line, without a running game, uh, he just simply can't carry the team. It doesn't matter how many weapons he has. It, it, there's, there's got to be something to matter with the fact that, you know, with, with a lot of things. But when Tony Pollard, uh, who's their best running back now, and when C.D. Lamb, who is their best wide receiver, already get any touches in that game, that's a, that's a real problem. The, how is it that they're able to take away two things uh, like that? So they, yes, they need to repair that offensive line so, so they're, so D- Dak can have a running game to rely on, and he won't take as many sacks he took five that was way too many none for garoppolo uh, and none and yeah. didn't get to jimmy garoppolo at all at all none and and you know garoppolo comes out that was to me one of the big things in the game is that kyle shanahan clearly out coached the, the cowboys they come out they they're throwing the ball all the way down the field that first drive 
they had a, they mixed in a couple of runs, but mostly it was through the air. He threw for the majority of his 174 yards, I believe it was, in the first quarter and maybe a half. Uh, and so they got a lead because of that, and they were able to then go to their game plan, which is to run the ball, play good defense. That's how they that's how they went, and so they were able to do that because the, the Cowboys were clearly not ready for that. They averaged ten and a half yards a play on that first drive, and none of those plays were forty or thirty yarders. They were all just big, just nice chunk plays all the way down the field. The Cowboys clearly had no way to stop them from doing that, so they need to be better. Uh, at stopping the run, they need it. They still need a run stopper in that defensive line. Uh, they could use a little help at linebacker. They could use some more help at safety at all three levels of that uh, of that defense. But I, I would agree with David. The number one priority is in that offensive line. They've got to replace uh, uh, you know Williams at uh, Connor Williams at left guard. Uh, he's just a holding machine. Uh, and uh, and and they got to think about replacing Tyron Smith at left tackle at some point. He's become just an average tackle at best. And then whatever in the world has happened to Lyle Collins, I don't know. I don't know how he peaked so quickly in his career, but he has clearly gone backwards. So that leaves you. And then Tyler Biotic is basically the center that he looked like coming out of college. Not really, you know, a, a guy that is ready to, I don't think, ready to be a center in the NFL. So they, they have some serious problems in that offensive line. And from a personnel standpoint, well, you named only four spots in that offensive line you were concerned with. So, so, so yeah, only four, Yeah, you know, and, and Zach Martin did not have a good game uh, Sunday either. Um, now, again, he's the one guy you feel good about in the offensive line, but how good can you feel about your two tackles? I mean, we're focused on Connor Williams. I think it's clear a move will be made there. Biotish needs to have some competition in there, and you can upgrade that position, no question. Uh, you're you're fine with Zach Martin at right guard, but how good do you feel about Tyron Smith and Lyle Collins? Uh, but from where you are from a cap standpoint and a team management standpoint, I don't know that you can trade out those two spots. You can't. You certainly can't do it from the cap hit. Uh, you know, you're not going to be able to, to make up for that talent for what you lose, what you're going to have to pay in dead money. But I tell you, Tyron Smith is really problematic because, you know, he was missing three games a year due to injury over the, like the previous five seasons. The difference was when he came back, he was still a dominant left tackle. You know, he may not have been the best or the second best left tackle like he was earlier in his career, but he would come back off of injuries and he was still a top five tackle. Um, he came back twice this year off the injuries earlier and then off COVID late in the season. He was average at best, at best. So if you're going to miss that many games out of your left tackle, which is arguably the most important position in your offensive line, um, that, that puts you in a tough spot. I'm sure we'll talk about Porzingis later. You know, it's a little bit comparable to that. Uh, when you miss that many games, even if a guy's at playing at a certain level, uh, where does it put you and what does it do for your continuity as far as, you know, being ready to go at the end of the season? But, yeah, I think the offensive line is is the first thing they have to address uh, this offseason. But 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 there are others. I mean, you know, there, there are some big decisions. And, and from where this team is cap wise, you know, we said this earlier, part of their strategy this year. And this goes back to what Evan was saying, what when uh, Tony was talking about this team is built to win now. Well, this team was built to win now because it has 21 unrestricted free agents on it. 21 players on this team are going into free agency. 
Now, not only are not all of them coming back, but you're going to have to decide, okay, can we really afford to pay Randy Gregory to keep him? And at what price? Because you still have, you know, Demarcus Lawrence, I think, accounting for 17 or 19 million on the cap next year. Uh, can you get him to re-alter his contract or even take a pay cut? That seems unlikely as well. So uh, what about Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup? Uh, you know, you went, you said going in, there's no way both would be back. Well, Gallup has the injury. He probably won't even be ready to go until the start of training camp. Now, do you go with him over Amari Cooper, who you can get out of the contract? But where does that leave you, you know, at receiver? There are some very complicated decisions for them uh, going ahead here. And, um, but, but the way what we saw offensively does not track with the numbers, right? This was the number one offense in the league in terms of points, and it was the most points scored in franchise history. But you look at this offense over the final six to eight weeks of the season, and you look at what they didn't do in the postseason, and it's hard to say that that this offense is on track. And, and very quickly, you're talking about Lamb and Pollard. Between them, a total of eight touches for 52 yards in that playoff game. Yeah. I, I'm just going to volunteer the right now that, that Amari Cooper should not return to this team. Uh, considering that he would command a $20 million salary uh, next season, he's not even the best receiver on the team now. You know, uh, that the best receiver is Lamb. I think you can make a case that the other two, the other guys, Cedric Wilson and and Michael Gallup, when they're healthy, uh, are, are making as big a contribution. I agree. C. D. Lamb uh, is their Amari best receiver is. at uh, the moment, I, I, but did he really improve much from his rookie season, or did he plateau? No, he didn't, and and, and that's and that's something that they have to be concerned about because in that game we talked about eight touches, right? But what happened late in the game? He gets thrown yep. a little short pass, and what's he doing? His head's halfway turned, and he's looking to run with the ball before he's ever secured it. He still does that. And if you're the lead receiver, the those, those hurt you uh, even more, it, right? It, it, you're mean, right. You, you have to have less of those. Well, I think I think there's no question that we can say that we, we all were bought into the thing that these were this might be the no. best trio of receivers in the league, and it simply wasn't. Uh, Amari, I believe Amari Cooper's skills have gone to decline. He doesn't look nearly as fast. He was never – really fast, but he looks almost slow to me now uh, coming in and out of his breaks. Uh, he's still a, a terrific route runner and he, and he catches the ball well enough, uh, but he's not a dynamic player in any sense. He's almost become a possession type receiver. Uh, the, the, the dynamism that you get from this, this core comes from Michael Gallup. Uh, it, it, I would like, if, if I'm the Cowboys, I want to see how, what's the, uh, the prognosis on Michael Gallup, when do you think you can have him back? Is this all doable? And if so, you, you would think that the, a deal you could get for him would be a pretty reasonable now, considering he's coming off such a major injury. Well, I, I would mean, imagine it would be a one-year deal so he could recoup his value and then go back into free agency next year is probably what you're looking at with him. Uh, and, and, and Amari right. Cooper's contract was designed yeah. for this. It was designed for him to give them two years and then going into the third season for them to make a decision – between him and Michael Gallup as far as who they wanted to pay. That's just been complicated because of Gallup's injury. Or, or have they made the determination that, no, with where Lamb is, 
we're fine giving the money to Gallup. Let's go ahead and, and let Cooper walk and we'll get that 20 million to use. I, I, Kevin, I've got, a, I've got a question for you in specific now. Go ahead. David just broke down the offense entirely, contract and all of that. My question for you is, do you have to fix the coaching elephant too? Is there a coaching issue that's got to be fixed here too? And I, these are my points here. I, I think all season long, I rambled on and on about the number of penalties, particularly the pre-snap penalties that this team incurred. That's fixable. That should be fixable. The second thing is the game planning particularly for this game in big situations, I think you've got a lot of thoughts about the play that uh, succeeded after the, or, or after the, fun, the the fake punt that got the Cowboys back into uh, moving, um, moving the ball. I think there's some real question about what the call was there. Um, and certainly the last play of the game, we can talk about the officials and where guys would, were spotting balls, but that was a horrible play call in that situation. Um, and, and I don't think, at any point in time this year, have you been completely sold that Mike McCarthy has this team moving in the right direction? So where does this team stand with Mike McCarthy? Well, I think, first of all, you got to look at, at Jerry Jones' history. I always like to look at these things and determine it's not so much what I want to happen. You know, Tim Kalashaw tells us he, he uh, you know, wants, uh, you know, the, uh, the defensive coordinator to be the head coach because, you know, Dan Quinn's going to end up being the, the head coach in Denver or someplace uh, next season. Uh that yeah, I'd be all for that. I like Dan Quinn. I think he, I think he is a good head coach. But the the history says that Jerry's biggest regret, other than the Jimmy Johnson fiasco, is that he fired Chan Gailey after two seasons. Uh, he, he, Jerry has said that many times. So why in the world would he turn around and fire Mike McCarthy after two seasons, uh, a guy who's won a Super Bowl? Chan Gailey never did, and uh, and who got the team to the playoffs this year after a horrible year last year. So he can make a lot of excuses for him and, and, and hope that that all works out. I I do think that Jerry probably put some pressure, he and Steven both, on Mike to stop being so crazy and doing crazy things during the second half of the season because we didn't see those crazy plays nearly as much in the second half of the season as we did the first half. But then it got into the playoff game, and, and they had to do something, and so the fake punt, with, you know, with Brian Anger throwing the ball uh, to C.J. Goodwin and, you know, and gets the first down. That's a great play. And then they try to double down with what they called the turbo, which was a, a twin set of plays, a package of plays in which you leave Anger on the field as an offensive player. And, and for the life of me, I'm really not sure exactly what they wanted to do with that play, what you hope to accomplish with that. But I think the point goes to, as McCarthy explained it, one of their players was celebrating on the field. And so therefore the officials reset the clock and it screwed them out of what they were trying to do to, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, to, to the opposing team. So at that point, you, you my problem with this is that, look, this team is undisciplined. We know that they commit penalties out the wazoo. Every they, they led the league in penalties this year. They tied a league record for penalties in a playoff game uh, on Sunday. So if it's so undisciplined the rest of the time, what makes you think this team is going to execute when you're trying to do something cute? You know, that requires a lot of discipline to pull off those kind of plays. That goes to the very last play of the game when you're expecting Dak to run down the field. He's running on the middle of the field with no timeouts, which – 14 seconds left. That just sounds like a bad idea just on the face of it, doesn't it? If he'd been trying to run out of bounds, that'd have been one thing. But he's running down the middle of the field. The middle of the field, he runs too far, actually. He's probably 
as Tony Romo said, he probably should only run 10 or 12 yards. Then he gets down. But at that point, you turn around and hand the ball to the umpire because he has to touch the ball. And it, and, and so Dak's explanation was, was oh, well, no, you don't have to. He didn't have to touch it. I don't have to hand it to him. He can just come up and touch it. Well, you didn't get out of the way. And then Dak's complaining about that because, you know, he got sacked by the umpire on the play. Well, you you got to let the guy get in there. I mean, that's that's part of the deal. So clearly – it's one of those things where you. this is the difference between good coaching and bad coaching is that a, a good coach says, okay, did we go over this today in practice? Yeah, we went over this. Okay, we're good. All right, here we go. And it's like, no, you don't really have it. We're going to do this. I remember one time doing a story on Gordon Wood, and he told me uh, the, the great coach at Brownwood, the greatest high school coach in Texas ever, and, and Gordon Wood said, we'd run a play, and if somebody made a mistake, we ran it again. And if somebody made a mistake, we ran it again. And we would run that play 10, 20, 30 times in a row until nobody made a mistake, you know, and that's how they did everything. And that's, and that's what great coaching is. You make sure that these guys aren't going to make a mistake. You make sure they know the rules. You know, you know, you make sure that they know that when you get down, you, you run, then you turn and you hand the ball to the ref, to the umpire. So he can set the ball and we can a get lot the there, but real quick. They can't Callie. Well, I appreciate the phrase out the wazoo. Does anyone in your generation use that <laughs> phrase? And had you ever heard it before Kevin uttered it? I'm going to say, I do not think that I had heard that before, but I smiled because that was funny. That was, was good, Kevin. I learned something new every time I talk to you. There you go. See, and the context was plenty good enough, right? It's not like you're thinking, well, I don't know what he's meaning. You may by consider adopting it in my mean, regular so conversations, but also may not consider that. We'll see. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, you have my permission. Callie, I used kit and caboodle in a text with my kids the other day. Um, and I thought at that point in time, that I was a very old person. Does that indeed make me a very old person? Well, as a younger person, yeah. I've never heard that either. So I'll let you figure that out. Perfect. <laughs> you should be wearing a straw boater if you're going to say things like kitten caboodle. All right. I think that's going to do it for our Cowboys talk. We've talked about this team. We're going to talk about it some more next week. Well, we're going to, as David said, we're going to be ripping them for weeks uh, for this. Uh, we want to move over uh, from our Cowboys segment to the Mavericks uh, and talk about a team that at least seems to have a future, unlike the Cowboys. Uh, they are uh, coming up here in about ooh, three weeks on the trade deadline. And there's been a lot of speculation recently that uh, they were in pursuit of either Miles Turner, uh, the uh, Metroplex product, uh, playing for uh, the uh, Pacers now. Center, great shot blocker, very good defensive player, just 25 years old. Or John Collins, uh, center for the Hawks, uh, who is 24 years old, uh, more of an offensive player, uh, certainly, than Turner is, not nearly as good defensively as he is. Uh, either one of those guys, I'm all for. It's a question of whether the Mavericks have the resources to make a deal like that. And secondly, should they make a deal like that? So, Callie, what do you think? I mean, I think anytime you have a chance to add a young player who's got a name in the league, you're going to want to do that. But I look more, like you said, at having the resources and having the right matches of things to make a deal like that happen. I think the money makes it hard because if you're not going to trade Luca, which they're obviously not, and you're not going to trade KP, which 99% sure they're not, then 
your biggest two trade assets are Jalen Brunson, who's making less than $2 million right now in the final year of his contract, and Dorian Finney-Smith, who's making $4 million this year in the last year of his contract. And you have to make the money match at least, you know, as much as you possibly, possibly can in a trade. And any player that you're going to want to trade that's going to add value over those two guys is going to command a higher price tag and is going to be playing on a, a much more expensive deal at this point. And so you look at a guy like John Collins, who is probably the more likely target at this point because they reported today that Miles Turner's out with less a left foot stress reaction. And so he's making $25 million a year. That means that in addition to pairing you're just sending them some sort of tradable asset that you're willing to part with. You also have to send guys whose contracts are going to be able to match $25 million. And that's a lot easier said than done when you want to add a good player. It's making the math work is a lot harder for the math situation right now. Yeah, it is. Cause you know, the, as you said, uh, uh, you know, obviously you want an upgrade at center here. Uh, we can make the argument of, of whether Porzingis is really a center or a power forward and and uh, and how they want to play him and what he prefers to play. But when you're playing Dwight Powell and Dorian Finney-Smith both on the floor at the same time, if they're both starting for you, that, that's not good. You can, you can start one of those guys, and preferably that is Finney-Smith because he has a definable game. He is a good defender, and he does – he is now hitting his three. So he is a legitimate three and D player. So that's, that's good. Dwight Powell game is not good enough on either end of the floor to justify him playing. And it's certainly not to justify his $11 million contract. And, that, and that's part of the deal of making a trade. You could, you could throw enough guys in a deal uh, like, like a Dwight Powell, uh, like a Reggie Bullock, uh, you know, and then you, give them a first rounder and maybe a second rounder. And then you throw in, you know, maybe you throw in Jalen Brunson or Dorian Finney Smith, and that might come up to the level of what they would uh, want in return. I don't know that. Uh, it doesn't sound great to me. Uh, but uh, then there's a question of how much is that going to improve the team right now? And David, you know, you, you cover the NBA for a long time. These deadline deals like this, how often do they pay off immediately? Very rarely. And, and, you know, especially for a team in the Mavericks position, you know, th there have been times where you've seen a, a team that was maybe in that four or five seed, but it but it underachieved and really went all in on like a big player to kind of change the uh, complexion of the team. Um, but 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 where they are with the number of teams ahead of them. I don't know that there's a trade to be made for them out there that that dramatically alters the nucleus of their team going forward. And I think that's still where the Mavericks are, right? I mean, if if they don't if they can't add a piece before the trade deadline that they can go into this offseason and say, "Well, look, this is one of our core three guys." Uh, I'm not sure they should do it because of the the flexibility they'll have at the end of the season. And trades are but this is the difference, too. Trades are so much more difficult in, in the NBA today than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago, and really more difficult than in any other sport because so many trades have nothing to do with an exchange of talent. It's just about acquiring a salary, a salary slot you can use in the offseason. Uh, this sport rents more players in season than any other sport does. 
Uh, I, I mean, I know baseball does that to to an extent, but but not with key guys the way the the NFL does. And so, um, you have to ask why you're making the trade. And I think you could probably actually make an argument if Dallas, unless Dallas can get a player that they are convinced would be a, a top three or four guy for them in the intermediate future, which I mean two to three years down the road. If you can't do that, why don't you just work with this group, get a good feel for them, and if you take on a, a salary cap slot that you can add to the $14 million you're already going to have at the end of the season, do that versus making – I have a problem just making a trade for a guy who, well, yeah, he's going to be slightly better, but does he get you to that next level? And, and I, does John Collins get you to that next level, which in my mind is, is a, a top three seed? I don't know that he does. Yeah, uh, Callie. Let's and all this obviously uh, hinges on on what they get out of Kristaps Porzingis uh, for the rest of this year and the rest of his contract, which so <laughs> far has been underwhelming uh, to say the least. So go over the numbers of how many games he has missed this year, both because of COVID and because of injuries. Yes. Yeah, so he just came back last end of last week from seven games out with COVID, which is the longest that any Mavs player had missed with COVID. He was out for 12 days, seven games in those 12 days. And then he's also missed nine games with different injuries, five for lower back soreness, and then a pair for a knee bruise, and then a pair for right toe soreness that I guess limited his mobility all the way up to his hip. Um, So by his standards, maybe that's not as much injury wise if you take away COVID, just because that's not something that you know, basically any Maverick can avoid <laughs> this winter, then then that's fair. But so far they've played 44 games and he has played in 28 of them. So yeah, he's gonna, a, if he plays the rest of the season, doesn't miss a game, he's only going to play 66 games. And I, and I kind of, you know, in my own head, I, I put this 65 game barometer on him. It's like that he really needs to play 65 games a year. If you can get that from Porzingis, you're probably doing well. Well, he, he's not going to make that. And, and some of that's obviously COVID, as you said, He's probably going to come in somewhere in the low 50s, uh, low to mid 50s because of load management the rest of the way. And Lord knows anything else that goes wrong with him. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I'm wondering if, if if the Mavericks could look at this season uh, and, and say, uh, OK, listen, we had more COVID. We had guys get hurt. We weren't counting on and. And can we just use this year as another, uh, you know, uh, a learning season to find out who we are and, and where we're going and keep our keep our uh, powder dry for, you know, players in the offseason and that kind of thing. Can you can you that, that seems reasonable to say, but can you burn another year of Luka Doncic's greatness? I mean, it. it He's on the clock, right? Uh, I've got my doubts now whether he's worked his way up to a top five player. Uh, I think he was closer to that actually last year than he was uh, than he is this year. He's a top ten player. You know, you always hear if you've got a player that good, you need to be competing for a title. Well, at this point, the Mavericks aren't close to that. Yeah, it's it's a weird situation because I think he's reached that echelon a lot quicker than anybody expected, and a lot quicker than maybe some of the the top five or even higher stars did in their careers at this point. Is it considered another wasted year? I don't know. This year is also weird because like you said, he's not playing as well as he has the last two years. I think a little bit of that might've changed since he came back from left ankle soreness and COVID. I think he's looked to be in a little bit better conditioning. He's getting more triple doubles. He has three in his last five games 
the shooting is not there. And that's something that I'm writing about later today is um, that's clearly the most obvious issue with his game right now is he cannot make a three and he's cursing about it. And he's whining, you know, yelling about it at himself. He's frustrated at himself, not getting back into transition defense. And we saw that last night. It's not always the prettiest thing to watch, um, which is not something you usually say about his game, but is it considered a wasted year if he's not even necessarily up to that level where we might've expected him to take this next step. And so I don't know. It's, I don't even know if I really answered your question to be totally honest, but um, it, it's a weird year in many different aspects. And I think Luca is included in that. Whereas maybe in years past, he's been the one thing that, you know, isn't included in the, what is, what are the Mavericks doing? Where are they going right now? Kind of conversations. Well, to, well, to me, that's interesting because would he recognize his culpability in a subpar season and say, well, because that's a lot different than getting frustrated with the franchise for not putting guys around you. I mean, is, is he really self-aware enough to say, you know what? A lot of this season was on me. So let's, and not kind of let that build up on like, well, this team isn't doing what it should around me. Publicly. Yes. I think he is self-aware enough because after every loss, he really does take it upon himself. And even last night, Somebody, I think it was Tim McMahon of ESPN, you know, asked him kind of a softball question of, hey, you now own more than half the triple doubles in this franchise's history. What do you think about that? And he was like, I need to shoot better. I'm playing so terrible. I need to shoot better. And so he really does have a self-awareness that I think is a little bit beyond him being just 22. Would that, you know, manifest after an off season of sitting around and thinking about it, would that manifest into frustration that if they don't get out of the first round this year, that that he's not happy. I don't know. I think we have to kind of wait and see how things play out and how much he does or doesn't improve off of where he's at right now. But I think that at least on the surface, he is self-aware enough to know that he hasn't been available enough and he hasn't been playing well enough and he hasn't necessarily been in shape well enough to be leading this team to the places that we nece- we thought they might be taking um, those next yeah. steps this season. And this is the real tough thing going forward with them too, because I mean, it's with star players at his level you can't really separate them from the franchise. So we can talk about the Mavericks not getting past the first round, but it's all going to go on Lucas unable to get past the first round now five years into his career, six years into his career. And he's going to be the one feeling and catching most of the criticism, not the organization. The organization still will too, but I don't know that he'll hear that like he no. will. Well, if you're that, such a great player, why haven't you gotten this team that Yeah, we don't talk about how Dwight Powell's never made it out of the first round either in Dallas. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Not if he's not surrounded by any talent. I mean, the, the, the question I still have got, we're coming up on the three-year anniversary of the Porzingis trade, right? I mean, it was January of, of 2019. And three years later, Kevin, you're still asking the question, basically, can this guy be counted on as, as one of your big three? He was traded for to be one of your big three, was he not? No, he's not treated number two or one. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was the idea. Yeah. It was not a top three, it was a top two. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I mean you don't have an answer on this at this point in time. And Luke is not I don't think, with the exception of the greatest player maybe in the history of the NBA, has anybody taken a team by himself deep into the playoffs? Who? He's got to have Trey some Young. degree of supporting cast. Here here's the thing about uh, Luca. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right, great. Yeah. Here's the thing about Luca, and, and because back to Cali's point, because he does listen after every game, he says, "I got to play better." He says that, but after the game in which Reggie Miller called him out uh, on t- TV and said he's out of shape, 
you know, this is not good. He needs to be better. His mm-hmm. answer to that question, when you ask it, Callie, was, well, that's personal. He was offended by the question. And and, and I, not <laughs> because you. of the way you asked it. I thought you asked it terrifically. Uh, but the, the point was, is that, that you know, he, I don't think that Luca gets it. I don't think he realizes that, hey, you know, going to the gym and shooting or doing this other stuff, it's all good. And you know, that's what you need to be doing. But you got to be in great shape. That's that's just a starting point. You know, and I think that's why when Dirk Nowitzki, when they retired his number, he volunteered. I'd love to work with him. I'd, I'd lo- love to, to, to spend time with him. And I think that could be the best thing that happened to him is if he just saw a little bit from Dirk of, man, this is what you got to do. You got to be in shape all the time. You don't wait until the season starts to get in shape when you're 22 years old. That there's no reason for you to be out of shape. First of all, when you're 22 years old, you look at what made Kobe Bryant great is because he works so hard. You know, all the greatest players had unbelievable work ethics. There's no question about that. And I think that's certainly something you can question about Luca. Besides his shooting, is that where you know, where's your body at? I mean, are, I, I thought when the season started, he looked slow. Not only was he out of shape, he just looked slow. He wasn't getting past anybody. And he was at, because of his difficulties at the free throw line, I don't think he was finishing all the time because he was afraid if I get fouled here, I don't know if I'm going to make these free throws. Uh, so there were some serious questions about his game. So to, to Evan's point about, well, yeah, don't they need more players around him? Yes, they do need more players around him. There's no question about that. But he's got to get his head and his body all in the right place as well. And and it will be demanded of him. That's what happened to Dirk Nowitzki. Nobody ever questioned his commitment. But when they got blown out in the first round by Golden State, uh, Dirk got barbecued for that, you know, uh, in that season. when they had, I think they had David, weren't they? The yeah, number, when the Golden they had the State, best record yeah. in the NBA okay. that year, as I recall. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, you do, you do pay that price as the best player. The, 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 listen, it's on the Mavericks to, to put some better players around him. There's no question. They, they rolled the dice on KP. They came up snake eyes on that. That's another cliche, uh, Callie. Uh, and, and that, that one is not, that one has not panned out. And the problem with that one is that it now it has handcuffed them because he's making so much money. He has an untradeable contract. I, I do not go back at that and say that was a bad trade. I still think that was – I thought it was a great trade at the time. It didn't work out. I'm shocked that it didn't work out uh, because uh, Porzingis was coming off a bad injury, but he had been a terrific player in New York. Uh, and it, it just hasn't worked out because of a number of reasons. One is I think that, that KP has difficulty – accepting the role as the second banana or the third banana, whatever that is that he has to be. And and secondly, he's just been hurt all the time. So uh, it was unfortunate that they, they tried. It didn't work out. They, they gambled big on him. It didn't work out. And now they're left trying to figure out, so what do we do? How do we recover? How do we move on? And I think those are all legitimate questions about where the Mavericks go from here. Uh, and I think that the things we discussed and the potential of – do you make a trade? Do you not? Does it make you better? Do you really want to hamstring yourself by trading another first rounder? Uh, you know, you're already you're already uh, you're going to be missing two. I think they're one down. Are to they the still next. one down or two down, Callie? What is it? They have theirs this year, but yeah. there's okay, one down to the next. weird stipulations so, on how and when and where they can trade it because they are missing theirs next year. Exactly. So. A lot of things for the Mavericks still to do. All right. I think that's going to do it for our podcast this week. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We will be back next week when we will continue to dissect the Cowboys, have them under the uh, – it reminds me of my biology class in college. We had that frog all strung out with the 
pins all in it and all that different stuff going on. We're going to have was your everybody grade in biology the, and the, the, the pins college. here for, I don't know. Did you? I okay. actually did very well in biology, Mr. Smart Alec. Yes, I, 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 I thought about becoming a, a, a you know, a, sure. a biological engineer. Is that something? I don't know if it is or not. But I was going to become a marine biologist. <laughs> I, I was going to become a marine biologist, but but when I was in school, they were out the wazoo. With, in... <laughs> Crowded field. <laughs> Kelly, quick question here. Did you have to dissect a frog in biology in high school no. or had you guys moved past that by the time you got to high school? No, I've, I've dissected a frog before, so I can we can bond over that. That's for sure. We share common ground on the dissecting of frogs. I loved I loved biology. It was a great class. I, I was I was really good at that stuff. That was the only thing I could really do. Anyway, so that's it. And of course, everybody missed the marine biologist joke because it was a Costanza remote. Oh, that's uh, right. The wave was angry that day, my friend. Oh, the sea. The sea. The sea you have a little SpongeBob yeah, element to you, though, Evan. Job. So I All thought right. that was. That'll fun. do it. <laughs> yeah. Another, another great one. You remind me of SpongeBob, Evan. Uh, I'm more of a Squidward. <laughs> You're very much a Squidward, actually. <laughs> <laughs> bye, bye, SpongeBob. <laughs>